Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We are continuing this summer through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, we've been looking at chapter 1, and then we started chapter 2 last time, looking at this whole idea of prayer and evangelism, and we had some, some difficult theological waters that we delved into last time uh, related to the situation of understanding the word all. Does all always mean all? And so this week, we're going to jump into some even more difficult waters, especially in light of some things that are going on in our culture right now, especially uh, within the Southern Baptist Convention, the convention that I'm involved in regarding the role of, of women in ministry. And so this has been a very controversial passage of Scripture. And so we're just going to jump right into it. We're going to be looking today at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Now, I do want to preface this by saying that this is um, part of Paul's overall discussion that started back in chapter Two, verse 1, where Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So Paul begins this discussion on the subject of prayer, and then he's going to move into how men and women are to specifically conduct themselves in the practice of prayer and worship in the life of the church. One thing I do want to draw your attention to before we start is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. That passage of scripture is kind of a foundational passage for the book of 1 Timothy. And Paul makes a statement in there. He says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So one of the major themes of the book of 1 Timothy is how we ought to behave, how do we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God, in the church. So church life, how is the church, the institution of the church to be organized? How is it to function? How do men function in the church? How do women function in the church? How do elders? How do deacons? And so uh, this is a key passage of scripture. And so in this text before us today, um, we're going to read this. Uh, Paul's going to address men and women. So let's read together 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should Pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now you can see why this passage of Scripture is somewhat controversial. So in verse 8... Paul makes an appeal to men. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or, or quarreling. Now, when he says in every place there, he's probably contextually talking about uh, Ephesus, wherever the church met together in those house churches in the city of Ephesus. And so when he talks about prayer and lifting up holy hands, um, Paul's not so much prescribing a dogmatic posture and how we're to pray. You always have to pray lifting your hands. But 
this was the standard way that Jewish men prayed in Paul's day with hands lifted up. We see this in the Psalms. Psalm 141.2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The idea of lifting up holy hands was more of a metaphor for moral purity. What Paul is saying here is that men, specifically, in the life of the church, are to be, are to be morally pure men, non-contentious or angry men, not divisive men, but prayerful men. So this is a message to men in our churches. Regardless of whether you're a leader or not, the men in the life of the church are to take the lead in moral purity. They're to take the lead in being non-combative, to be peacemakers, and to take the lead in prayer. So let's just stop and talk about church life for a moment. Let's, let's evaluate your church if you're listening to this. Maybe you're listening to this and you're a man. Are you a leader in your church in moral purity, in the unity of the church, and in the prayer life of the church? Would that our churches all across America and the world be filled with spiritual men who take this responsibility serious to pray, to be morally pure, and to be those that are peacemakers and unifiers. Think about the opposite of those things for a moment. Think about the toxicity that exists in the life of a church when men are passive, when men are not prayer warriors, when men are not morally pure, when men are combative and divisive. That's going to tear apart a church very quickly when men don't take leadership. And think about the false teachers that were infiltrating this church. Remember, the whole reason that Paul is writing this letter back to Timothy is to encourage and motivate Timothy to confront these false teachers that were wreaking havoc in the church. And these false teachers were acting the exact opposite of how Paul wanted men to work in the church. Uh, later on in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Verses 3 through 5, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So these false teachers were not prayerful. They were not morally pure. They were not building up the church in unity. They were tearing the church apart. They were being divisive. And so Paul says, men, listen, step up to the plate in the life of a church. Men, take the lead. Be examples in prayer. Be examples in moral purity. Be examples in being peacemakers. Don't be combative. Don't be divisive. Don't be gossips or slanders. But be men of integrity, men of prayer, men who are leaders. And again, he's not talking to about elders yet or deacons yet. He's just talking to the men in general. So this is a call that goes out to all men in the life of the church. Men, be the spiritual leaders in your home. Men, take the lead in prayer. Take the lead in moral purity. Take the lead, men. That's verse 8. Now in verses 9 through 15, the rest of chapter 2, Paul is going to give an appeal to women. Now I need to give a little background here to help you understand what was culturally going on in Ephesus at that time, which will help us understand this passage of Scripture. If you remember back at our very first podcast when we talked about the city of Ephesus, there was a temple to Diana or Artemis, which had cult prostitution going on there. Uh, many of the women in that city were wealthy. They would flaunt their wealth, either dressing extravagantly as a wealthy woman or provocatively as a temple prostitute. 
So in all probability, the Ephesian church had women from both of these worlds. Women who had come out of extreme wealth and women who had come out of temple prostitution. And they'd been saved by grace, powerfully. God had saved them. And now they were integrating into the life of the church. And as you can imagine, they're still bringing in their worldly habits of dress and adornment into the church. And and obviously, this was causing a distraction. Sometimes you may experience that in your church, especially, I think, sometimes in the summertime where... um, not necessarily in church, but I, I know that there's times where I go into Walmart, into a public place, and, and you can't really imagine what some of the, the women, young girls, wear in public. And so think about you know, what, what happens in the life of a church. And so the women of that day, they would like pile their hair uh, like towers on top of their head, and they would decorate it with costly gems and pearls. Mainly the whole issue was to be ostentatious, to draw attention to themselves, either to show off their wealth and their extravagance or provocatively to let everybody know they were a temple prostitute so that people knew what type of woman she was. Now, Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter also echoes the same idea about how women are to dress in 1 Peter chapter 3, 3-4. Three through four, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." So when Paul says women should not adorn themselves um, or should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, what is proper with women who profess godliness, the focus again here with the women is on godliness and moral purity. So, So Paul's hitting home here, both men and women, on this whole issue of moral purity, on holiness. And he's really attacking the women in how they dress, reminding them that that women, how you dress says a lot about what you're drawing attention to. Now, I don't want to be legalistic and say women can't wear makeup or women can't have you know, jewelry. There's a whole movement of, of legalism that binds a woman's conscience to where you know, she can only wear a dress. I don't want to take it that far. But I would say that Women, especially because men are visual creatures and we're drawn to natural beauty, which is not a a wrong thing in and of itself, um, especially appropriately with our wives, uh, it's just that women in the way that they dress can sometimes inadvertently or advertently draw attention to themselves in unholy, ungodly, and unhealthy ways. Ways And so there's this moral purity in how, how women dress. And I think it's very important for parents to teach and to monitor how their teenage daughters dress. And I know it's very difficult. I know um, when I was a youth pastor in Colorado Springs, um, you know, we, we struggled with how the girls would dress in youth group. And I know that um, I had to counsel a lot of parents you know, it's really hard to buy clothes for our girls because everything's so skimpy and provocative. And, and, and I know sometimes it's a challenge with, with the culture and, and the clothing that's out there at times. Um, and so parents have got to take the lead in making sure that their daughters especially um, are dressing modestly, are dressing appropriately, um, not frumpily, not, um, not saying don't have style, not, not, not saying to, you know, just, you know, basic things. I'm just saying, you know what is modest and what is not? Why are you wearing what you're wearing? Are you wearing it to draw attention to yourself, to particular body parts? Are you drawing attention to, 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 to make yourself something that's unhealthy for others to look at? All right, so let's get into the controversial passage, especially in our modern times. Verses 11 through 15 obviously are controversial. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, I think these verses clearly teach two things. If you just look at what Paul's saying very clearly. Number one, in the church, the women are not to teach doctrine to men. Number two, in the church, women are not to exercise authority directly over men. Now, before we dive into this passage, we need to understand this passage in the context of these false teachers who were causing division. So later on, we'll get to this in, in chapter 4, but in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul still continues to talk about these false teachers. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. We don't know exactly what this whole issue is of forbidding marriage, but somehow what scholars would say is that in the church in Ephesus that Timothy's pastoring, these false teachers were somehow perverting or twisting God's plan for marriage causing confusion over gender roles, the traditional roles of being a wife and a mother for a woman. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.14, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.6-7, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never being able to arrive at the church. Okay, so something's going on in the context of the church in Ephesus with these false teachers that were impacting um, how uh, women were, um, were being treated and also how women were acting in the life of the church. Now, here's verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, at first glance, if you're a woman listening to this, this may raise your, your ire a little bit that you're to learn quietly with all submissiveness. But I want to just give you a point that's somewhat overlooked. The fact that Paul wants Christian women to learn is very, very important. We just sometimes gloss over that because... In the, the time of Paul, it was not generally practiced in the Jewish synagogue system that, men, that, that women were taught. Only the men were to learn and to be taught. And so the fact that Paul's even having women to learn was somewhat um, even more radical than the synagogue system. What was probably happening in Ephesus was that these women were being led astray by false teachers to somehow express their liberation from their husbands, liberation from spiritual leadership of men in the church. Um, they were maybe criticizing, they were vocally opposing uh, male elders in the church. We really don't know what was going on here, why they were learning quietly. It could be that they were um, openly, publicly uh, criticizing the leadership. Paul addresses this same issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 33-36. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Okay, so Paul has a statement here about women learning quietly, women being submissive in the life of the church. Now, let's look at verse 12, and then I'm going to try to navigate these difficult waters. Verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Okay. 
So there's three questions we've got to ask of this verse as to what Paul means. Number one, what does Paul mean when he says, I do not permit? What, what does that mean? I do not permit a woman. Secondly, what does it mean for a woman to teach? What does it mean to teach? I do not permit a woman to teach. Third question, what does it mean when he says, I do not permit a woman to have or exercise authority? So three questions. What does the verb permit mean? What does it mean to teach? What does it mean to have authority? Now let's look at these three questions. First question, the word permit. I do not permit. Is Paul here speaking of his personal opinion or is he speaking on God's authority? If this is inspired scripture, which we as evangelical Protestants take it to be, the inerrant, infallible word of God, it's God's ultimate authority because it's a final God-breathed scripture. Some have tried to explain this word permit away by basically saying, yeah, that's Paul's personal opinion, but it's not binding on something that should be followed or not. In other words, it's in Scripture, but it's not binding because it's simply an opinion of Paul. It's not an actual scriptural precept. Others have argued that since it's in the present tense, when Paul says, I, I'm presently not permitting a woman to teach, some would say, well, that's, that's time-based. That's a specific point in time, specifically to the church in Ephesus. Paul did not intend for this to be a universal or binding principle for all time on all churches. It was just contextual. It was just specific to Timothy's context in Ephesus at that time. Now, I find both of these interpretations somewhat weak because here's the issue. As an apostle who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is speaking for God and not simply giving his opinion, but a binding rule. And then who's to say, if you, if you use this interpretive grid, then who's the arbiter of when Paul is speaking authoritatively and when Paul is giving an opinion, or when it's contextual and when it's not? I mean, let's just take this argument to an extreme. When Paul speaks about homosexual behavior in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, is Paul giving an opinion on homosexuality specifically to the church in Corinth, or is this a moral precept binding upon all churches at all times? You see, if you play that argument that it's Paul's opinion, it's specific to a point in time, the homosexual agenda can come along and say, yeah, we know that's in the Bible, but that was just, that's Paul's opinion, and he was just addressing a situation in Corinth. That's not really binding on us today, and so we can just kind of throw that out, pick and choose what we want to believe, because that's just for that point in time. You see the slippery slope that interpretive um, hermeneutic takes you down. But let's, let's just look at the second question. What is the meaning of the word teach? I do not permit a woman to teach. Okay, is a woman restricted from all forms of teaching in the church, or is it restricted to not teaching men? Now, obviously the answer is no, because the Bible says older women are to teach and mentor the younger women. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. Okay, older women teach what is good. And to train the young women to love their husbands and children. So Paul gives an instruction to older women to teach younger women. So when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach, it's not saying a woman can't teach at all. It's just that a woman can't teach men. Now, some have tried to argue that all Paul's doing is, is prohibiting women from teaching heresy or teaching false doctrine. Paul's basic, what the argument goes is Paul's not forbidding women from teaching men. He's just forbidding women from teaching men false teaching, 
women can teach men as long as they're teaching sound theology. But here's the issue. In the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, the three letters of Paul that are addressed to church leaders, the word teach, that Greek word teach, almost always carries the idea of authoritative doctrinal teaching done by the elders or the pastors. Let's just, let me just give you a smattering of the, the word teach and show you how it shows up all throughout the pastoral epistles of Paul. 1 Timothy 3, 2, Therefore an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, able to teach. 1 Timothy 4, 11-13, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is Paul's charge to the pastor, Timothy, and what his role is. 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Titus 1.9, the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. My argument is, is from the contextual evidence of how the word teaching and how it's often combined especially with the word preaching or exhortation, shows up in the pastoral epistles, it shows up as one of the primary roles of an elder, a pastor. So I think it's safe to conclude that when Paul does not permit a woman to teach, this in effect means any type of doctrinal or theological teaching in a church context where a woman is teaching theology or teaching over men. This, again, this is my personal interpretation, and this is what we practice at Emmanuel Baptist Church. I think um, we are probably uh, stronger on the complementarian side than a lot of churches. Uh, for example, um, you know, some churches have women pastors. Uh, obviously, you know, we don't have that. The Baptist faith and message does not allow that. But then some churches ha don't have a problem with a woman teaching a mixed Sunday school class of men and women. Uh, we don't practice that here at Emmanuel. All of our adult Sunday school classes are led by men, mostly our elders. Um, we do have a women's Bible study and many women's Bible studies, but they're women teaching women. And obviously we have women teaching younger children. Uh, but when boys get to be about in high school age, um, you know, they're, they're taught by men. That's just the practice that we have as Emmanuel Baptist Church. I'm not saying that it's absolute or that if you don't do that, you're wrong. That's just the way we've chosen to um, understand this passage of Scripture and practice this in the life of the church. Now, question number three, what does it mean to have authority over a man? I do not, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, what does that mean? The word have authority or exercise authority is not the normal word Paul uses for authority. It's actually only used here in the New Testament. Um, the updated 2011 NIV translation has softened it. And there's been some controversy because uh, the, the, the 2011 NIV has become a little bit more uh, gender neutral. It's softened some of its stances or, 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 or um, I guess, translations on some of these issues. And so 1 Timothy 2.12 in the new NIV says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. Assume authority. Now, this interpretation means that a woman can't usurp or take the authority away from a man in insubordination. But the argument goes from, from those that are more egalitarian in their viewpoint is that if the elders give authority for the woman to teach, she can teach other men if she still comes under the authority of 
the elders. What, what they're saying is she just can't um, come in and, and take that authority away from the men. But if the men give her the authority to teach, she can sure do that. Uh, let me give you a quote here from Mounts um, in his commentary on, on Timothy. Mount says the question of the meaning of the word authority is not insignificant. If it means, quote, to exercise authority, then Paul is prohibiting any type of authoritative teaching that places a woman over a man. If it means, quote, to domineer in a negative sense, then it is prohibiting a certain type of authoritative teaching one that is administered in a negative, domineering, coercive way, thus leaving the door open for women to exercise teaching authority in a proper way over men. The parallel of, in the Greek words, exercise authority with teaching, the two words together, suggests that it's a positive term. It seems doubtful that Paul would prohibit only women and not men from teaching in a coercive way, especially since the text only names male opponents. Okay, so he gives two verses there, not two verses, two interpretations. One is any type of authoritative teaching of a woman over a man. The second type is that she just can't be domineering, she can't be coercive, she can't come in and take that authority away, but if it's given to her by the elders, she can sure teach men. Now, I take the first interpretation, I think that's the way Mounts does, that Paul's not simply telling women that they can teach and have authority over men, but just don't do it in an abrasive, domineering way. Um, I think he's talking more about not teaching or exercising or having authority over men. Um, it, absolutely. Not just assuming that. Paul and the writer of Hebrews uses a word for leading or for having authority that almost always refers to pastors or leaders. Okay, so exercising authority. Who exercises authority in the life of the church? Well, it's, it's spiritual leaders that are, that are men, that are elders. Obviously, 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who lead or rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, the word lead there is prohistemi. It's one of Paul's favorite terms to denote pastoral leadership. Um, it, it connotes the idea of leading, presiding, exercising oversight, having a genuine care, servant leadership. It, it means standing in front of. So pastors, by virtue of their office and their calling, in a sense, quote-unquote, stand before the people as the men of God endowed with God's authority. So they not only, quote, stand before the people literally each Sunday when they, when they preach, when they do preaching, but they also, in a sense, symbolically stand before the people that they are trailblazers leading the path to help the church fulfill its mission. And so leading well involves not only a consistent and faithful pulpit ministry by the elders in the church, but visionary leadership that inspires, motivates, and encourages the congregation to embrace their mission as a church. And you also see the same word in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you, over you, who lead you, who are your spiritual leaders in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Paul's talking about um, esteeming and respecting uh, the elders, the leaders, those who are, are leading, those who are exercising authority. Um, the credentials we'll look at next time in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he talks about the, the qualifications of an elder as he needs to be able to lead the church and, and lead his family. So here's the big question. Okay, here's the big question. Does this verse apply to today, in all times, or was it only for the Ephesian church during Paul's day where he addressed a specific problem? Okay? That's the big hermeneutical question. 
Is it time-bound to Paul's day at a specific cultural situation that Paul was dealing with? Or is this a universal general principle to be practiced in all churches for all times? And so here's the issue. The entire New Testament is written to address specific issues that were going on in local churches. So let me give you an example. On Sunday mornings, I'm preaching through the book of Galatians. What's the issue in the book of Galatians? Well, you have these Judaizers that are coming in that are distorting the gospel, and the, and the, the, the Galatian is be, church is being bewitched by them. Okay, that's a specific cultural issue. It's talking about circumcision. It's talking about the Judaizers, dietary laws. It's specific. It's the occasion of Paul's writing to the church in Galatia. Okay, 1 Corinthians, there's incest in the church. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. There's a lot of cultural and specific situations that were being addressed to an individual church in Corinth. So almost every single New Testament book that's a letter, not, the, not necessarily the Gospels, but the letters are written to address a specific church with specific problems. But here's the point. That does not mean that what was written applies only to those circumstances in those particular churches, or we would have to throw out half of the epistles. So the argument, you have to be very careful when you make the argument, well, that only applied to them, and that was only contextual to them, and that was only a situation that happened to them. Who becomes the arbiter then of what you keep and what you don't? Because every New Testament epistle was written to a specific church with a specific problem in a specific cultural context. So the question then is, is this a binding teaching today on all churches because it's God's word about how women are to function in the life of the church as teachers, or is that only specific to Paul's time? Now, before we answer that, let's just keep reading his, the text. Verse 13, 4 Anytime a text starts with for, uh, that, that little Greek preposition can mean because or on account of. Here's the reason. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, let's just talk about a few things here. Paul does not indicate anywhere in this passage that this only applies here. I mean, Paul could have stopped and said, I'm laying this down only for the churches in Ephesus. This is not a binding issue on all churches everywhere. But what does Paul do here? He actually roots what he says all the way back into the story of creation and the fall, which takes us all the way back to the very beginning. So in the order of creation, in the Genesis account, obviously Adam was formed first to show that he has headship over his wife. Eve being created second does not mean, hear me clearly, does not mean that she's a second-class citizen or that she's inferior, but within the roles, equal in um, standing before God, men and women are equal in all ways, but particular roles that God has ordained in the home and in the church the woman, the wife, is to joyfully submit to the spiritual leadership of her husband. That's Paul unpacks that. You can go back to the Genesis account and see it. Paul unpacks that in Ephesians chapter 5. So if a woman teaches or has authority over a man in the church, she, in fact, is not submitting to the leadership roles that God has instituted, not only in the home, but in the church, going all the way back to the very beginning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven three, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, when Paul uses the event of Eve being deceived... It does mean that Adam passively listened to her. Adam let the serpent into the garden. Adam was not protecting her. She ate the forbidden fruit. 
So Adam is just is complicit in this because he failed in his role as a spiritual leader in protecting her from the serpent. And so what's the analogy here? What's Paul saying? If, if Eve was the one that was deceived and Adam was the one that became a transgressor, and Adam was passive, and Adam let the serpent in, and Adam just listened to his wife and took the fruit and didn't, didn't step in and, and be a leader. What Paul's saying in the analogy going all the way back to Adam and Eve is that men are more susceptible to error and false teaching and division in the church when they carelessly surrender the teaching and leadership responsibilities to women. That's Paul's point. When Women take a role that they're not supposed to take in the life of a church. Men become passive. Men become susceptible to false teachings. Now, verse 15 is probably one of the strangest and most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. It's had multiple interpretations. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What in the world does this mean? She will be saved through childbirth. Based on the overall teaching of First Timothy and the New Testament, this cannot mean that only women who have children will be saved. This is not salvation by works Create our salvation by procreation, okay? Because there's a lot of women who have not had the ability to have children, and we would say, well, then they're not saved because they didn't have children. What's Paul saying here? Again, it's a very difficult passage of Scripture. Um, I don't really know exactly what Paul's saying here. I don't think we can be dogmatic on a difficult passage of Scripture, but I think it links back to Genesis 3, 15 and 16, when you have the, the first announcement of the gospel right after the fall, when God comes and pronounces the curse on the serpent. And in Genesis 3, 15 and 16, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. As a result of the fall, women will have increased pain in childbirth. They will want to dominate over their husbands. There will be an unhealthy desire for gender role reversals in marriage and in the life of the church as a result of the fall. But yet, in that same passage of Scripture, the gospel is announced in Genesis 3.15. The, the offspring of the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah, Jesus, would come and crush the head of the serpent. Jesus would reverse the curse that happened as a result of sin. And so from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now the probable reason why Paul uses this childbearing analogy is that these false teachers were probably downplaying to the women in the church the importance of marriage and childbirth and the very specific feminine gender roles in the Ephesian church. Tom Schreiner, a professor of New Testament at Southern Seminary, where obviously I got my doctoral, gives a pretty good guess at this. And so let me give you a quote um, from, from him. He says, quote, This does not mean that all women must have children in order to be saved. Paul is hardly attempting to be comprehensive here. He has elsewhere commended the single state, 1 Corinthians 7. He selects childbearing because it's the most notable example of the divinely intended difference in roles between men and women. And most women throughout history have had children. To select childbearing is another indication that the argument is transcultural, for childbearing is not limited to a particular culture, but is a permanent and ongoing difference between men and women. 
The fact that God has ordained that women and only women bear children indicates that differences in role between men and women are rooted in the created order. Okay, so what's the conclusion based upon this passage of Scripture? The prohibitions given by Paul here for a woman not to teach men or have exercise authority over a man are valid for Christians in all places and times. Therefore, in order for Emmanuel or whatever to be a faithful church that's faithful to the Scriptures, we've determined that we must obey this command and not allow women to teach men or to have any positions of pastoral authority over men. That's just where we land on this particular issue. Again, it's, it's very co- controversial. Right now, it seems like in our denomination, there is a push for um, egalitarianism that I didn't see coming. It's kind of come out of the blue uh, in light of a lot of the Me Too things, Me, Me Too movement that's going on in our culture, the things related to how uh, Paige Patterson, the president of Southwestern Seminary, uh, had handled uh, women who had been raped and comments made and, and, and just some, um, some statements by other Southern Baptist women like Beth Moore and others. Uh, it just seems like the time is ripe in our convention to have a good discussion. We need to have the discussion about how women are treated. And there was a very good resolution that was passed um, a few weeks ago at the Southern Baptist Convention in Dallas that talks about how women should and should not be treated in the life of the church. And I wholeheartedly affirm that. Um, But my concern is, is that it seems like the door's being flung wide open for a more egalitarian understanding of gender roles in the life of the church. Our Baptist faith and message, the way it's currently worded, the 2000 edition, um, does not allow women to be pastors or elders. And so we have historically, at least in the past you know, 30 years since the conservative resurgence, have been a heavily complementarian denomination. Our church is that as well. Uh, and again, I think each church has liberty to, to operate under the lordship of Christ the way they see fit. We, as Emmanuel, just want to be faithful to the scriptures and understand this passage to be binding upon us today and not just cultural to Paul's time and place. And so again, uh, there's some controversy there. And so nothing like a podcast the past two times uh, to deal with controversy. So if you want to listen to some controversial podcasts or some controversial issues, uh, listen to Understanding Christianity where we deal with the text. We don't gloss over the text. Uh, We deal with difficult situations and I try to be balanced and give you the different interpretations and tell you where where I personally land and where our church lands so that you know uh, how we've come to understand what we've come to understand. And so um, with that being said, um, a pastor, men in the church who are spiritual leaders should never, ever abuse that power. They should never coerce or domineer or threaten or do any type of ungodly behavior toward any woman or girl. There is a high and holy calling for elders in the life of the church to be men of integrity, men whose lives demonstrate godliness, men whose doctrine manifests itself in sound theology. And so we're not being misogynist or chauvinistic by saying only men can be pastors and only men can have authority. We take that very seriously to say that with that charge to men comes the responsibility to be gentle leaders, to be spiritual leaders, to be men of integrity, to, up, to uphold um, the weak, and to, to, to be a safe place in the life of a church for women to flourish, for women to grow, for women to be all that God has called them to be. And so we don't hear me say that, um, you know, just because the Bible says here that women should not teach men or exercise authority doesn't mean that women should not have any 
type of impact in the life of the church. I can't tell you how many women in my life have influenced me spiritually, going all the way back to my mother and then to Sunday school teachers I've had and to my own wife, who is the the mother of my children, and, and we have many godly women in the life of our church who pray diligently for us, who, who, who lead in many different capacities, who serve, who mentor, who encourage, who use their giftedness, who, who I think are flourishing in the life of our church. We just understand that that role of, of pastor, elder, teacher, any type of spiritual authority is limited only to men, not because we're trying to be um, misogynist or chauvinistic or uh, we're trying to be out of touch with what the culture says. We're just trying to be faithful to what the scripture says. And I know it's a difficult issue, and I think it's one that, that each church needs to wrestle with and how they're going to be faithful to the scriptures. And so hopefully uh, that answers that difficult question. And if you do have more questions on this podcast or you want to um, contact me, you can go to seancole.net. You'll find all of my contact information there. Uh, you can go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. Uh, you can instant message me on Facebook, on Twitter. You can send me an email. Um, all different manners of ways you can get in contact with us. We'd love to hear your questions. Um, I, I, I enjoy the interaction I have with many of you that email me your questions um, from all over the, the, the United States and, and especially from Canadians. I think I have a lot of Canadians that are listening to this. So um, I appreciate the brothers and sisters to the north of us who, who listen as well. And so thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. May God bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. And until next time, would you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus?